We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh of New Bloom. Thanks for having me. And freelance Taipei-based journalist, Nicola Smith. Hello. And tonight we discuss policies to counter Chinese incentives, low expectations for a World Health Assembly invitation, a history of the sunflower movement, Li Ao the writer, and a better quality of living ranking for Taipei. But we'll begin with trilateral ties between Taiwan, the US and China taking the front seat for much of the week. And it began with US President Donald Trump signing the Taiwan Travel Act into law. Now China, of course, wasn't happy about that and called on Washington to correct its mistake, with Beijing saying that the act severely violates the One China principle and sends very wrong signals to the pro-independence separatist forces in Taiwan. Well, here in Taipei, the new head of the Mainland Affairs Council was sworn in, and Chen Ming-Tong told reporters after the short ceremony in Taipei that he hopes that his office and China's Taiwan Affairs Office will be able to work together. However, hopes for that were very short-lived when China's President Xi Jinping made what's some have called an official warning to the US and Taiwan, in which he said that any attempt to separate any part of China from the country would be doomed to failure and punished by history, in a speech that he made marking the start of his second term in office. Now, if that wasn't enough, a senior US government official touched down in Taipei after he said that statement, in fact, without, within hours of Xi's statement there. And State Department official Alex Wong told attendees at the American Chamber of Commerce annual dinner in Taipei that Washington wishes to strengthen ties with the Taiwan people and to bolster Taiwan's ability to defend its democracy. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen was also in attendance in that event. And while no one said what the US official and her talked about, we're sure they did have a bit of a natter. Now, of course, the US officials' comments were made after the Defence Minister, Yen De Fa, earlier on Wednesday of this week, told lawmakers that China's aircraft carrier, the Liaoning, had entered the Taiwan Strait. So there's a series of events that reads like the beginning of a Tom Clancy novel, Nicola. Um, yes. If you've ever read a Tom Clancy novel, I don't know. <laughs> he's not—he's not my favourite author, but he's—he's he's, um, yeah, I—I I do like a good uh, a techno good, thriller. A good, yeah, I like a good spy yarn. Um, it's um, you know, uh, it—it all seems very fast-paced, but has anything actually um, changed in in any major way? Everyone's sticking to their. Um, already stated, uh, long stated opinions. Um, I think, you know, this is something that President Xi had to say because he has just asserted himself now as a lifelong leader. He has to, you know, show that he he is being very firm. But at the same time, I, I think it was good to see that, that the US did, didn't budge under Chinese pressure over this. They went ahead with the Taiwan Travel Act. And, and we've really, you know, we've yet to see how much that's actually going to change things. Um, Alex Wong was already coming to Taiwan uh, before this act was signed. So is it going to make a huge amount of difference? I mean, if they do start sending some very um, even more senior officials, then I think that's when we're going to start seeing a reaction from, from China. 
Right, Brian, of course, mm. Nicola said that, of course, Alex Wong was already coming to Taiwan to attend the AmCham dinner. A certain newspaper, though, which will rain, remain nameless, but a Chinese-language one in Taipei, had a big headline. Mm. Alex Wong turns up mm-hmm. as Travel Act is signed. Then AmCham, or rather the AIT, rather, American Institute in Taiwan, was forced to turn around and say, no, it's nothing to do with that. Yeah, I think that just how the news cycle works, that these uh, stories were perceived in relation to each other because they all happen to happen at once. Uh, the Taiwan Travel Act, for example, it just is coincidence that it happened to be passed at the same time as Xi Jinping's, in the same time frame as Xi Jinping's comments, same with the visit. Um, nevertheless, I, we can see that with the Trump administration, the protectionist hawkish wing is on the rise again. So you see that in the appointment of uh, John Bolton as national security advisor or the return to power of Peter Navarro within the... Uh, uh, replacing Gary Cohen, more or less, within the, the economic uh, sections of the Trump administration. And so increasingly aggressive moves towards China are likely on the part of the Trump administration, and that might provoke responses from China. And another interesting thing that happened this week, talking about that topic, Brian, was Xu Xinliang, the former DPP chairman, of course, who said that Taiwan should not involve itself with the confrontation between the US and China, but should create another path to interact with the two powers to ensure its security. Do you Mm. see this happening, or do you think not going to happen? It's unlikely, but I think this represents the fact that within the DPP, dissenting voices are emerging again, Um, voices that do actually want to have better relations with China. I mean, these voices do exist within the DPP, and and the question is whether they will try to challenge Tsai Ing-wen. That has been perceived as being the case in the past. Uh, For example, particularly, um, you know, Xu is one example. Uh, Another example is Frank Xie, who is currently the representative of Taiwan to uh, Japan. And so I don't know if that will actually gain traction, but these voices do exist in the DPP, and I I think the DPP is much more cautious on the China issue than people oftentimes realize that there are such voices within the party that Tsai is oftentimes fairly quiet in response to threats from China. What about, I mean, do you think the, when the US guy came over, Alex Wong, of course, the Liaoning was put into the Taiwan Strait? I mean, again, it was all pulled together as in American official arrives, aircraft carrier goes through Taiwan Strait. Coincidence? <clears throat> Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think that they would have sent their aircraft um, carrier to greet Alex Wong somehow. I mean, that's a huge logistical um, feat. Um, you know, the Liaoning has, has already um, taken the same path um, on several occasions. And I think it's just part of a kind of general um, intimidation strategy of China that's just going to be something that, that Taiwan will have to face over the next few years. Um and you know, it's just it's it's interesting. And what Brian was saying about um, these kind of more moderate voices that are coming coming up within the DPP, because Taiwan is kind of caught between two kind of great superpowers, um, neither of whom I, I think really have um, you know Taiwan at the top of their priority list of 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 interests. And and Taiwan has to make some kind of. Um, moves to protect itself and it has to proceed cautiously. Another comment this week was by former Mainland Affairs Council Chairman Su Chi, who and he raised the possibility of the United States playing the Taiwan card against China. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a concern increasingly with the Trump administration. That has occurred in the past in, during times in which the Trump administration seemed to be moving towards more supportive moves of Taiwan, yet at the same time making comments that it might be willing to broker some kind of deal with China. And that, that caution, I think, is, is quite warranted. Uh, historically, the DPP has maybe been less than critical of the U.S. On the other hand, the voices that express this now, um, whether Su Xi or Xu Xingliang or whoever, uh, perhaps they want to seek rapprochement with China. And that, that is, if that's what they mean by distancing 
losing oneself from both powers, that is also of concern. Right. Anyway, we hopefully it started like a Tom Clancy novel, but it won't end like a Tom Clancy novel <laughs> because we know what happens in Tom Clancy novels. We've all seen the movies or read the books. Anyway, moving on, but only slightly, however, and the Cabinet has proposed eight policies it hopes will counter the 31 incentives unveiled by China. And, of course, Beijing unveiled them in an attempt to attract Taiwanese to both work and study there. Now, the government here in Taipei has dubbed the eight policies the Strengthen Taiwan Policies. A new name definitely needs a better name. Anyway, <laughs> and they are, and there's eight of them, so bear with me, to increase benefits for researchers, give more support to innovative industries, boost workers' financial rewards and benefits, improve the work environment in the medical sector, step up protection against corporate espionage, ramp up industrial innovation and transformation, boost the momentum on the local stock market, and increase investment in the local film industry. So, Brian, we've got eight of them there. Which ones popped out there, or did none pop out for you? Um, none really popped out for me, actually, because I feel like that what Taiwan does to counter China's policies, I'm not sure how this... I mean, it, it is almost a question to me why announce this now in response to these policies when Taiwan already has problems with international competitiveness, and this has been longstanding. Um, the one that does jump out, if there is one, is probably the film industry one, because uh, China has removed the cap on allowing Taiwanese films into China. Uh, and Taiwanese film and strengthening the film industry, that is the kind of way to prop up independent Taiwanese identity and so forth. So perhaps that's that's why that is uh, somewhat unusual, whereas the rest are all just economic incentives. At the same time, with the passage of changes to the Labor Standards Act under the Thai administration, I must wonder, though, will that just counteract any possible incentives you could have? I mean, you could have... Uh, fewer hours for higher wages in China, and this has been made worse by the changes to the Labor Standards Act. So kind of, you know, I feel like the time institution has sort of shot itself in the foot already. Right, Nicola, I mean, do you think you should have come out with the strengthened Taiwan policies? Was it just for show? I don't think it's just for show. I think, you know, that that's a bit unfair. Um, but, yeah, it definitely needs a better name. Um, <laughs> I... You know, it's good to see that the Taiwan, the Taiwanese government has actually um, uh, responded head on to, to China. I mean, China's blatantly trying to lure the the best talent over to the mainland, and actually, it's a it's a smart strategy because if if you um, use a strategy strategy of repression, then people are just going to fight back. But you know, it's harder to say no to. Um, a good job and better wages and better living standards and and that's what you know um, currently you've got over 400,000 of Taiwan's workforce who are on mainland China um, and a reason that a lot of them go is because they do get better wages there um, and they do have better job prospects there's more multinationals working there and Taiwan really has to do more to keep its best talent here and its graduates here its graduate wages have been pretty stagnant since the 1990s um, and you, you speak to, to young people who say they can't afford to, to live in Taipei they can't afford to have a family they can't afford to get married so that also has the knock-on effect of, of um, low birth rates um, and an ageing population. And just not enough has been done to incentivise startups to um, give young people better job prospects where they can actually progress through... Um, through companies as well, it's you know there's still a very kind of hierarchical 
um, working atmosphere in Taiwan and, and a lot of these big firms are family run and it's very hard for people to progress. So I think that's something that Taiwan really needs to get a grip on. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, at the same time, the surprising case that the Thai administration has not raised is that if China is really moving towards offering Taiwanese citizens the same benefits as Chinese citizens, uh, then we have the case of Li Mingzhe. So there's the possibility that Taiwanese citizens will be treated as Chinese citizens and be subject to arbitrary arrest and so forth for uh, what is construed as political activity within China. And that's it's surprising that actually, to counter these economic incentives, the question of the loss of political freedoms is not raised as, as a possibility of what would happen um, increasingly to Taiwanese in China if, if they do end up working there. I think that's so because money talks, doesn't it? I mean, a that's lot right. of people just <laughs> a lot of people go to China and they just want to live a quiet life. They don't want to be political activists. Mm. They don't want to rock the boat or um, they just want to have a good wage, a decent, um, a, a decent living conditions and prospects for themselves and their families. So, I, you know, yes, if you say something um, politically motivated on WeChat, then you will probably be in trouble. But I think most Taiwanese would realize that in, in China. Um, I hope so. But at the same time, just increasingly, China's actions are very arbitrary. For example, just, supposedly the phrase, I do not agree, is, is now a banned search term. So the, the net is increasingly widening. And I think that the time issue could point that out. And of course, the Premier this week said, wanted renamed the 31 incentives, of course. He called them the 31 measures. <laughs> Whatever gradation of difference there is. <laughs> Do you think he did that for a reason? Uh, I guess they want to say that they're not incentives, that this is not an incentive that will lure over Taiwanese people. Um, I'm actually not very sure how this differs from past efforts by China to reach out to Taiwanese people. In terms of logic, in terms of the overall aim, they're the same, just uh, strengthening of those previous measures. Measures, that's the word we need to use. That's right. And in fact, they, <laughs> when China, of course, announced them, the government did say, well, only two or three are actually new measures. Mm -hmm, that's the right. rest are just all rehashes of other things in the past. But it's all about the psychological impact as well, isn't mm -hmm. it? I mean, you, you know, your average person in the street wouldn't realise that these are not new measures mm -hmm. um, and might view this in a positive light. And we'll move on and it's that time of the year once again when Taiwan seeks an invitation to the World Health Assembly. While Health Minister Chen Shijong on Wednesday of this week said that the government will do everything it can to secure an invitation to the main meeting in Geneva, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu came out and told lawmakers that the government actually realises the chances of Taiwan obtaining an invitation to this year's WHA are slim. Now, of course, China is still pressuring the World Health Organization to exclude Taiwan from the World Health Body and its assembly. Now, there was also claims this week that the current World Health Organization Director General, who is from Ethiopia, and I'm not even going to attempt to say his name because I'm going to butcher it, well, apparently he's repeatedly refused to consider requests by Taiwan-friendly countries for Taipei to be granted an invitation. So, yet again, two years running now. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I guess this will be a story just going forward every year, unfortunately. Um, yeah, it's also not surprising that the Thai administration is being realistic about it, because I think people do know that there's not a very large chance that it will that Taiwan will be granted evidence to the WHA. At the same time, there probably will also be another round of criticism that the Thai administration is not doing enough to try and seek evidence. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing is just ridiculous, isn't it, when it comes to public health? Um, then everyone has an interest in allowing Taiwan to attend these kind of meetings. Um, you know, pandemics don't stop at borders, um, and Taiwan's done a good job in, in putting that view across um, and expressing those concerns. But at the end of the day, it comes it comes down to 
um, members of the WHO like being willing to come out to bat for Taiwan. And I was interested to see Alec, Alex Wong's quotes um, uh, this week, where he said that the US did not want to tolerate Taiwan being excluded from, from international um, fora anymore. Um, but, you know, will the US be able to turn that tide? Then at the moment, it looks increasingly unlikely. Um, you know, again, it's a, it's a question of priorities and whether people are willing to um, prioritize, prioritize Taiwan on an issue like this. I mean, the Simon Schinner can very easily leverage on the issue to claim that China is prioritizing politics over saving people's lives or the health of the world in general. Um, just leveraging on that is, is a different question entirely. And I think Taiwan sometimes has a dilemma about what strategies precisely it should adopt to try to spread word of this. For example, should it actually try to be disruptive in terms of, say, protest actions while the meeting is going on? Or should it try to be quiet and just only meet with countries on the sidelines and more or less play a good citizen despite being excluded? Yeah, the government have said they're going to have the usual meetings on the sidelines. But I mean, do you think these meetings on the, the a these meetings on the sideline don't generate much news outside of Taiwan? And b do you think they actually are any good? They don't, and I think that for this kind of uh, for this kind of information to be shared, you don't actually physically have to meet. So sometimes it is for show. Um, along those lines, oftentimes the reason why the government does that is to avoid criticism at home that the government is doing not not doing enough, or that it is somehow excluding Taiwan. Well, obviously it is, but they they want to avoid the criticism that they're not doing anything and it's become inactive. Look, most of the work that's done on on health is is done behind the scenes anyway. Um, it's not done in, in kind of big assembly meetings. So, yes, it's symbolic that Taiwan is being excluded, but um, I, I do think that the, the behind-the-scenes work is more important on these issues. Right, and we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and one of our guests today was in the news this week, or is in the news this week, as he's just finalised a 300,000-word English-language history of the Sunflower Movement. Now called the Daybreak Project, the online publication explores the beginnings of the student-led group, the protests themselves, and its place in history. So, Brian, of course, its release was timed to coincide with the fourth anniversary of the beginning of the protests over the KMT governments, which it was at the time, and its handling of a cross-strait services trade agreement. And I believe the first place you took this to was San Francisco. Uh, yeah, I actually did go to Berkeley this uh, weekend for a conference. Uh, other speak- it, was, it was on the Sunflower Movement and the Umbrella Movement. Other speakers included Ding Fei Fan and, uh, of the Sunflower Movement and Alex Chow of the Umbrella Movement and a variety of academics and other participants of the movements. Uh, it was interesting. I enjoyed it. It was, a, it was a chance to share information, discuss, and reflect on four years afterwards. Uh, it's 300,000 300, words long. So what does it say, Brian? But try to condense <laughs> it for us. That's a, a little para- hard. Paraphrase, maybe. That's, that's a little hard to condense. It's actually closer to 340,000 words. Uh, if it was a book, that would be over 1,000 pages quite easily. Uh, I spent 15 months working on it, and there are a total of 54 interviews, which are just completely transcribed and translated into English. Uh, there's also a timeline of the movement uh, detailing what happened on a day-to-day basis, which was possible because it was only 23 days of the occupation. So you can look at everything that happened day by day in terms of news and what, et cetera, what happened. Uh, also, there's an interactive map of the occupation, uh, translations of key primary sources from the, from the movement, for example, some speeches and declarations and that kind of thing. There's a, a dictionary that compiled of terms, that political terms, that are often 
often used by youth activists, kind of give an insight into how activists thought about the world in 2014. And what do they think of the world? Uh, oftentimes it was returning to issues of identity, Taiwanese identity, but also poor economic conditions in Taiwan and the broader sense of Taiwan being in a dilemma about where to go, a sense of stagnation. And so four years later, it's, it's a question, has, did the movement achieve anything? And that's part of why I wanted to kind of create something that would be able to reflect on that, that moment in time. So did it? After 340,000 words, Brian, did it achieve anything? <laughs> well, I mean, I would have devoted such a long period of time of my life to uh, to this project if I didn't think it achieved something. Uh, just just the question of what that legacy will be will be increasing a question as, as the years go by. I thought it was very important to capture what people think about it now. Uh, for example, you know, if I'd done this project in, let's say, before 2016, I think the answers would have varied very differently. Some people, A lot more people would have said the movement failed. And even now, a lot of people still do think the movement failed, in the sense that a lot of the key demands or Taiwan's uh, status as a whole, these, these have not been settled. Uh, but we do have electoral successes to point to from 2016 onwards. And so that's a very easy measure to point to as, as something that has changed. Right, and you were quoted by the Taipei Times as saying you wished to do the report because you were afraid of it, this event being lost to history. Do you, th- do you really think that's possible? Actually, I do think it is. That's the surprising thing. I think that uh, in Taiwan particularly, there's a lot of materials produced on the Sunflower Movement already. So in Taiwan, there's, there's no way that this could be lost to history. But I think internationally, there hasn't, uh, there hasn't really been so much on it in English. Now you do have the academic books coming out four years later, because that is just the academic cycle, that it takes time for this kind of stuff to uh, you know, process through. Yet at the same time, I think there is actually a lack of awareness of it. The Umbrella Movement, for example, is much more famous. And yet people sometimes have this view that the movement, the Sunflower Movement, was only like 50 people or something like that. So, I mean, interviewing at least 50 people, that's a sign of the movement being a large and substantial thing. Also proving that there's so much data or information that can be gathered on the movement and showing that it was something that had depth and wasn't just like a short temporary thing that just occurred and then was forgotten and was overshadowed by, say, electoral successes in, in legislature or, or presidential elections. And it covers what the, what the student leaders did then, before, and what they're doing now. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, it also covers before the Sunflower Movement, the kind of different social movements that led up to it, uh, mostly from the Wild Strawberry Movement in 2008 up until the Sunflower Movement in 2014, but also some stuff about the antecedents of the Sunflower Movement in previous social movements, such as the Wild Lily Movement in 1990. Uh, so it does cover a, a span of time, although the focus is primarily on the 23 days of the occupation. And what are the what are the leaders of the Sunflower Movement saying now about it? Um, that depends. That really depends. It, it depends on what you define as leaders. Uh, I mean, a lot of people. Lin Feifan, what's he saying now about it? Does he remember it fondly? Or does he remember it as maybe he he didn't achieve what he wanted to achieve, or did he remember it as something? Oh, I've achieved it. I can move on now. I think I think it's always a mixed legacy. I think that a lot of uh, the movement leaders actually still felt the need to respond to criticisms that were being made of them four years ago, which is very interesting. A lot of those criticisms or a lot of the internal contestation within the movement has been forgotten uh, because this has been overshadowed. The event has, is remembered much more in broad strokes now, even by participants. But it is interesting that when you do raise these questions, the movement leaders still felt the need to redre- address past criticism. This also came up during the conference in uh, Berkeley this weekend, for example. Um, 
yeah, in general, just because in, in any social movement, there is a center, a quote unquote leadership, and there's usually a more radical kind of splinter group, which criticizes the the movement center for either tactics in terms of what the movement is trying to, uh, in, in terms of what is being done, or in terms of the overall aims of the movement. And there was both in the Sunflower movement. And I think that happens in almost every social movement. Uh, but particularly, particularly with the leaders, there was a, a focus on a small group of people within the legislative front, and the fact that media was there constantly in an enclosed space. Uh, it, it people felt like they were on the spotlight, and so I think that for a lot of people that that led to uh, even trauma. Um, there's a term like movement injuries. That's one of the terms in my dictionary that people felt really burned out after the movement. That they felt that they couldn't really go on anymore, and some people actually had to withdraw from politics or activist life or whatever. Uh, and in other ways, I think four years later, doing these interviews was a way for some people to reflect on what happened and even try to kind of cope with their trauma. So I'm, I'm glad I could actually do that. Right. I mean, do you think such an such an event could happen again? That's actually one of the questions I asked every interviewee, and that the answer varied a lot. Uh, some people said that because it happened once, it could happen again. Other people pointed to the fact that with a DPP administration in power, it was not likely to happen. And actually, between the interviews I did, between before and after Labor Standards Acts uh, was was changed, there was a substantial difference in 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 responses. That uh, before people thought there could not. It was unlikely to happen again because there would not be protests of a DPV administration. After the protest, more people said that they thought it could happen again. Um, as for myself, I don't have an answer. Uh, I think that something on that scale involving 500,000 people, it's unlikely to happen again unless it touches on a core issue regarding Taiwan's sovereignty. And if the conditions are right for that to happen, it could happen again. And Taiwan does usually see mass movements near the tail end of presidential administrations. So it's, it's not impossible. Yet at the same time, for the stars to align in exactly the same way is, is quite unlikely. And of course, one question you must have been asked before, would they ever, the Sunflower, like a band, it's not a band, it's a, it's a student protest <laughs> movement, but would the Sunflower movement reform? That's the thing. Um, that was also raised that there are a lot of opportunities for uh, solidarity across different political groups within the Sunflower movement, and these these moments were all lost. I think it's unlikely. I think that, uh, uh, particularly with something that also came up over the weekend, is that compared to, let's say, Hong Kong, there do seem to be less splits within the movement that are on the level that people won't entirely talk to each other or just really don't have any form of dialogue. Yet at the same time, these, these there are these divides, there are these past grudges that are very hard to forget, and that does play out in politics, uh, particularly in the division between, I think, uh, third parties. So going forward, uh-huh. will there be another Sunflower movement? Will it have a better name? This, the, wi- the Wild Strawberries. I never liked that. <laughs> I thought that was always a bit stupid. And this is called the Sunflower movement. Can we have a more radical name, possibly, for a student movement in the future? Actually, for some reason, I think there's a tendency in Taiwan to name movements after plant life, or particularly flowers. Uh, the name New Bloom actually comes from, you know, wild lily movement, wild strawberry, sunflower. They all seem to be kind of things blooming or growing or plant life. Uh, I don't know why there is such fondness of plant life. Even the KMT, uh, when they tried to organize a counter-movement to the sunflower movement, they called it the carnation movement, if I recall correctly. And so so movements do tend to be named after flowers. I, I imagine it would probably be some other form of flower. Uh, I'm not sure what that would be. The stinging nettle. Why not? That sounds very that's catchy. That's a, that's a that better name for a The stinging nettle <laughs> protest. I, I would join that protest. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and where can people get this report, Brian? Um, so it's available online. It's a subdomain of the New Blue Magazine website. So it's daybreak.newbloomag.net. And you were commissioned to write it, of course. You didn't just do it for fun. Uh, that's right. It was a product of a fellowship. So I had a, I had a year to work on it. Um, fellowship from the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy. So I did it as a full-time thing for a year, and in the future I do hope to do similar projects, although it's, it's again, hard to have the time to do this kind of thing. 
Um, the idea of it just is to have it freely accessible and open to anybody, which is why it was online. So I do hope that people enjoy it. Right, and other people provided photos and news footage for you. That's right. Actually, a lot of it was a source from Creative Commons images that people put online so that anybody could use it, um, you know, fair use and that kind of thing. And there's a lot of data that people have gathered on the Sunflower Moon already. Um, a lot of images are available. It's actually very surprising. And so the thing is organizing the materials, what primarily took my time. Right, we'll give Brian a break there because, of course, he's just written 340,000 words. That's a <laughs> lot of work. Anyway, Taiwan lost controversial writer, historian, politician and contrarian Li Ao on March the 18th when he passed away from brain cancer aged 82. Now, while some will remember Li as the crazy politician guy in the red jacket who held up full frontal nude photographs in the legislative chamber and also let off pepper spray in a legislative committee meeting room, others know him as a prolific writer of political commentary, historical studies, and a couple of novels, many of which questioned and were critical of mainstream opinion and thinking. Now, I spoke with Shirley Jung, an associate professor in the Department of Chinese Literature at the Shershin University, about Lee's writings. Good evening, Shirley. Good evening, Gavin. So, Lee Ao's career as a writer, of course, began in the 1960s when he penned articles about democracy. Now, can you explain why his writings upset the government of the day? Okay, uh, that was during the martial law area, starting from 49 to 87. So, the magazine he was in, called Wenxing Magazine, uh, they criticized Chiang Kai-shek and also uh, advocated the total westernization. Uh, of uh, Taiwan. So uh, same as the Free China, Ziyou Zhongguo, those uh, journals were closed down. So that was the basic reason that he was uh, imprisoned. Were Li Ao's early writings popular? I think he belonged to that uh, anti-government stream. And uh, because during the martial law area, that became very peculiar. So we think that he was an intellectual who was very free-thinking and always refused to reform to the established uh, sort of uh, norm. Right, and of course, he he later became pro-unification, which was rather odd when he was calling for the westernization of Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. I think people people change during the uh, life course, but pro-unification with mainland China, I think it has something to do with he, he came from mainland China. There has always a deep root uh, with China, so uh, we could also blame him for changing. Uh, but earlier, he was really not really pro-Taiwan independence. So uh, uh, another explanation is that he also changes uh, so-called Bian Selong. He bowed to the, the strong China. You could say that. Right, of course, Lee spent about five years in prison. And then when he was released, he continued to write articles critical of the KMT government. Now, what did the government think of this? I'm sure, of course, they, they did not like that. So he was actually in prison again uh, for a short period of time. But I want to talk about, uh, starting from the first uh, collection of essays that made him popular, uh, famous was Dubai monologue under tradition. I think he wanted to be an independent thinker. He, uh, he, he criticized that the traditional China produced only one kind of scholars who became, became bureaucrats and uh, sort of very much slave to the, to the feudalism. So he wants to be this, uh, 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 a true person, uh, uh, as opposed to those uh, fake gentlemen, Wei Jinzi. He wants to be the Zhen Xiaoren, the real person. Uh, with uh, blood and flesh. So uh, all he did was exposing the hypocrisy of Chinese culture. Of course, for that reason, he was resented by the government, but also liked 
by those uh, anti-government uh, group of people who later became the uh, Min Jindang. Of course, Li Ao produced two novels, and he, he did consider himself a novelist. But, I mean, would you consider him a novelist? Uh, let's say this. He, he could be a novelist, of course. Like Qian Zhongshu is a novelist just by one, by one novel. But uh, that is really a very minor part of his career. I, I think the reason he feels that way is that we, we all have two sides. One is outside, another is interior. I think emotionally, his uh, sort of soft side, his soft writing. Starting from the 50s, he wrote a lot of love poetry. And then uh, uh, you see Beijing Fa Yuan's this novel was conceived while he was imprisoned. And the interesting thing is the topic, the subject he chose for this novel is the failed uh, sort of Wu Xu Zheng Bian, okay, the, the political reform of the late Qing, which happened exactly 120 years ago. That is a peculiar thing. I suspect that he really projects himself as one of those reformists, but later uh, that was failed. So I think that is uh, interesting. But you know, he is a historian. So this novel is a historical novel, okay, full of something he was most good at, a lot of historical so research. I, I personally would not think it's a really bad novel. As for the second one, uh, the going up mountain, going up mountain, love, okay, uh, has a lot of sex. Uh, it's a combination of sex with uh, philosophical thinking and the political discourse. Again, uh, very much a leap, uh, sort of, leap, uh, sort of a showing off kind of a characteristic. And he says that this is, um, has a lot of uh, uh, sort of deep connotation, uh, that might be. This novel is about one man with two girls, okay, 30 years ago and 30 years now, later. And uh, these two women are mother and daughter. Okay, but then uh, ending with a puzzle whether this girl actually might be his daughter. So it's uh, it's uh, it's interesting. It's a puzzle. So uh, if you ask my genuine uh, opinion, I can't say that uh, this is the best novel I have read. How important do you think Li Ao's historical non-fictional commentaries and other writings are in Taiwan today? I think he stands for a, a very very unique kind of. Uh, 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 intellectual. During the 1949 chaos of TMT coming to Taiwan, uh, those uh, sort of uh, transition, and he tries to find himself in a position. So he says that I am the most correct person in the incorrect time. So he tries to, he has a big ego. He wants to be this unique intellectual who's never preceded, and later on, nobody is like him. And the key uh, spirit is that he is an independent thinker who is not like any other sort of fake gentleman. So he is uh, arrogant and he dares to show off and uh, all the things he does tries to prove himself to be a, a big ego that is uh, different from any other. Even among the, his, uh, his sexual life, his romance, is uh, so to show that he is different from the other fake gentlemen. And almost in a way, I feel that uh, sort of self-abandon, uh, there is a sense of failure deep inside his heart. I, I feel that way. Right. But I mean, do you think his writings will be remembered? I think so. I think so. Uh, he, he will always be this unique uh, uh, Liao, who is almost like uh, during the old times, like Zhu Lin Qixian, or we have those eccentric people. Only he is a, a very sort of best historian, best scholar, who choose to live a very different sort of life. And so just refusing to conform 
to establishment. And that was me in conversation with Shirley Jung of the Shershin University's Department of Chinese Literature. And before we go, well, we had news last week that Taiwan was the world's 26th happiest country. And this week we've news that Taipei City has moved up one spot from last year in Mercer's 2018 Quality of Living Survey. Now the capital ranked 84th globally, one place above Kuala Lumpur. Now Singapore was the highest ranking city in the region at 25th. Tokyo was 50th. Hong Kong was 71st. Seoul was 79th. Shanghai was 103rd. And Beijing was 109th. 19th in the survey of the 231 cities around the world. Now, the assessment criteria included political stability, currency exchange regulations, healthcare, education, crime rate, recreation, availability of daily consumer items, housing, record of natural disasters, and transportation. Well, there you go. Taipei ranked 84th for all that, Nikki. Yeah, I mean, who does these things? You know, there's so many different um, (laughs) surveys on different things. Taiwan also came number two in, a, in another survey about expat living. Um, I just find them so subjective um, a lot of the time. And I just, I'd love to know more, a, a bit more about their methodology. That's a lot of factors to bring into to something. And I just don't think really you can rate um, a city accurately on, on you know, kind of bringing random factors and also presumably um, the researchers uh, own not views, but um, it's hard to keep maybe their own biases out of it. I just, you know, Taipei is a great place to live. I think um, it's an easy place to live, um, and it's welcoming. And, but apparently, you know, I'm happy with that. But apparently, Taipei could have come 83rd. But apparently the, the criteria that said the availability of daily consumer items took a setback <laughs> with a toilet roll problem. Seriously. No, I made that up, but it sounded good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole toilet paper fiasco was such a non-story, wasn't it? Just, you know, I, I just... There's loads of toilet paper around. Well, we uh, I found, yeah, Hello Kitty toilet paper is still Enough. available. We don't need to know this. <laughs> I, I was actually going to raise that, actually, though, that, that uh, Taiwan, because it's, because it's so hungry for international prestige because of its international obscurity and marginalization, always pays a lot of attention to these, these rankings, although it's hard to know on what basis they are compiled. And I was going to say that if Taiwan had dropped, the toilet paper thing would have come up inevitably, and there would have been some kind of public controversy about, oh, toilet paper, wow, that really led to a decrease in international standing for Taiwan. We should think deep and hard about how how to fix this problem so that we raise in, in these rankings. Uh, so yeah, I don't necessarily think it means a lot. Uh, Taiwan is a convenient city. There, there are convenient cities all around the world. Uh, it is a question about some of the the, thing, the, the criteria by which they cl- they compiled these these uh, rankings. I mean, Singapore you can't chew gum in Singapore publicly. That's something that I. Uh, that's I not I on the criteria. The criteria right. didn't say can you chew chewing gum. That's right. But I think that's that's an important criteria. <laughs> and of course, apparently, Taichung came one hundred and first, which of course is better than Shanghai and Beijing. Well, I think uh, oftentimes maybe it is because of the air pollution issue, although, of course, that is getting worse and worse in Taiwan, particularly in central Taiwan. And so will that always be the case? Uh, I think I think that Taiwan really likes it when Taiwan comes off better than China in these, in these rankings or in terms of any kind of international competition. So that's another incentive as to why this would become a news item in Taiwan.
Probably. Anyway, there we go. And Taiwan could have done better had it not run out of toilet paper, supposedly. Anyway, we've talked about that before. We won't talk about that again. In fact, we're never talking about toilet paper on this show again, I've decided. Anyway, that was the show for this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today in the studio by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. Now, don't forget to check out, though, Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps for all our previous episodes. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.